First Peter chapter two, verses twenty-one through twenty-five. The apostle Peter, now a much older man than when he was first called to follow the Lord Jesus, is writing to Christians who were scattered across the region of Asia Minor, and though their locations and circumstances are different. What many of these believers have in common is that they are suffering to varying degrees because of their faith in Christ. Peter is addressing Christians who are being oppressed, who are being marginalized, who are being insulted, and in some cases, even threatened physically. And so we're picking up our reading this morning at 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose... Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This is God's word. The section that we're looking at this morning about the sufferings of Christ, at first glance, it it seems to be out of place. It comes right in the midst of a discussion about the Christian's relationship with government, the Christian slave's relationship to his master and husband-wife relationships. Specifically, this section falls immediately after instructions that are addressed to slaves. And obviously not every Christian who heard this letter read aloud was a slave. As far as I know, none of us here today are slaves, at least not in the physical sense. However, if you recall, back in chapter 2, verse 16, we discover that every Christian is in fact a bond slave of God. So there is something about the physical condition of servitude that parallels the spiritual condition of every single Christian, including you and me. And so we will observe in this passage three things, a summons to suffer, silence in suffering, and strength in suffering. First of all, a summons to suffer. A summons to suffer. This section stands nearly in the middle of the letter. It really is the letter's theological center, which means the message of 1 Peter revolves around the truths presented here. It's not too much of a stretch to say that Peter's words here are the basis for all Christian behavior. The section begins in verse 21 with the phrase, For you have been called for this purpose. Immediately, this begs the question, what purpose? For that answer, we must look to the preceding section, verse 20, right above it, told us that it is pleasing to God when we patiently endure unjust suffering. It reads, If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Christian slaves, they often suffered unjustly at the hands of cruel and antagonistic masters. And this is why the idea of slavery is so fitting for every Christian to wrap their minds around. 
if the Christian, that is you and I, are slaves of God, then we will find our experiences to some extent resembling the experiences of a physical slave. This means that there will be times in your life as you walk by faith that you do what is right and suffer unjustly. And as you patiently endure this unjust suffering, you will fulfill a purpose of God. We've already encountered one call in this letter, a call to something. It was the call back in chapter 2, verse 9, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this here in in our passage this morning is a second call, which is no less important. You will proclaim the greatness and the wonder and the power of God according to what he has done in your life. That was the first call. But you will also proclaim the greatness and wonder and power of God according to what he allows you to endure in this life. That's the second call. Peter himself, he he learned the lesson of how necessary unjust suffering is to the purposes of God. He learned it through rebuke. Back in Matthew chapter 16, if you want to turn there, Matthew chapter 16, a younger, much less mature, and much more impulsive Peter is listening along with the other disciples to Jesus. This is Matthew chapter 16. And their Lord is describing how he will eventually end up in Jerusalem. He will suffer at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes. He will be killed, and then he'll be raised up three days later. And upon hearing these things, particularly the part about suffering and dying, Peter blurts out, this is verse 22, Matthew 16, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. What's happening? Suddenly, the Father's plan for Jesus does not fit into Peter's plan for Jesus. This is not how things are supposed to work out. In fact, according to what Jesus just said, Things aren't going to work out at all. It seems Peter conveniently missed the part of Jesus speaking of his resurrection. And even so, he could not then wrap his mind around such an idea. The suffering, however, is simply not what Peter expected. It's not what he desired. It's not even what he could comprehend. Jesus, for his part, knew that his own suffering was necessary. Without it, his whole mission would fail. Jesus was focused on pleasing God, on perfectly doing his Father's will. His response to Peter, it was swift and it was strong. We might even say it was a little bit harsh. Jesus says, verse 23, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You see, Peter, he was literally playing the devil's advocate, convinced that his concern was motivated by love, It was, in fact, according to Jesus, satanically inspired. If Jesus had chosen to avoid suffering, there would be no cross. There would be no payment for sins. There would be no resurrection. There would be no redemption. There would be no eternal life. There would be no hope. There would only be darkness and despair and death, which is the condition of everyone without God. Jesus understood that it was the enemy of God who was tempting him to avoid the cross. And Peter was playing right into the enemy's hands. And now, years later, 
Peter has learned that lesson well. Suffering is not to be avoided, but embraced. Suffering is the path upon which God accomplishes his purposes. It is how God accomplished his purpose in the life of his son, and it is how he will accomplish it in yours. In saying this, however, we are not called to seek suffering. That is not what Peter is saying, nor is that what God intends. The call is to endure suffering when it comes. Sometimes we suffer because of the consequences of our own sin. Sometimes we suffer because of poor judgment, or we suffer because of a bad decision. But the suffering that Peter is speaking of, keep in mind, is not suffering in general. It is suffering that comes about quite apart from you having done anything to deserve it or even to provoke it. Specifically, this is suffering that is brought about when you are doing right. You are living faithfully for God and you are unjustly accused of doing wrong. One commentator writes, A life of suffering is our calling, not our fate. Fate is something that we resign ourselves to. It's inevitable. And so we buck up and with a sigh we we bear it. You can't avoid it, so you simply resign yourself to it. This is fatalism. A calling, on the other hand, is a privilege. Unlike fate, responding to calling is a choice. You feel joy when you embrace your calling. Calling satisfies. Calling motivates. It's purposeful. It it gives you traction on the path of life. As a follower of Jesus, you have been called for a specific purpose. That is to continue to do good when unjust suffering befalls you. And this calling is not because God takes pleasure in your circumstances. No, it's because of the remainder of verse 21. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. This word example, verse 21, back to 1 Peter chapter 2. This word example was used in the Greek language to describe a child that was learning to read. A teacher would would write down the letters for the children to copy his example. Or perhaps a builder would draw up plans for those training to learn how to build to copy his draft. The example serves as the model. It's the pattern that is to be emulated. And even though we translate this word example in English, words like example, model, or even pattern are not quite strong enough. You see, Jesus' suffering is not simply one example of many. His suffering is not just the best draft of the bunch. Jesus' suffering is the paradigm. It's the chief pattern over which every Christian traces their life. This means that if you are a Christian, that you cannot head off in any direction that you want to go. There are footsteps before you upon which you place your feet. Think about when it snows. It doesn't do that much here, I know, but when it does do it, if we get enough, if somebody has walked in that snow, you can see those footprints. They're firmly imprinted in the snow. And imagine trying to put your feet right where the person before you had walked. You're not forging your own path. You're walking the path that's already been walked by Jesus. 
and this path that always leads to the cross. But it also leads through the cross, into the grave, and up into glory. And all of this plays out in the experience of suffering unjustly. The Father led the Son, and now the Son leads you through your circumstances to follow the pattern. Here's the thing. You will not have to seek out this path. If you're a Christian, it will unfold before you. It will unfold as you seek to live faithfully to God's word, as you seek to walk according to the leading of his spirit. Like Peter's readers, as you conduct yourself in love, as you take a stand upon the truth, as you apply the teachings of Jesus, you will receive insults. You'll be ostracized. You will, in some form or fashion, suffer unjustly at the hands of men who do not understand and who are convicted by your witness. As you choose to react as Jesus reacted, you are following in his steps. Now, don't miss this. There are many people who sit in church week after week, people who claim to be Christians, who sincerely believe that the definition of a Christian is one who tries to follow Jesus' example. And they are dead wrong. If following Jesus' example made you a Christian, no one would be saved. His example is perfection. You and I are not. If your hope is in doing your best to be like Jesus, then you're hopeless. If you think that your standing with God is based on your ability to follow Jesus' example, then you have not yet reached the point where you realize how utterly incapable you are of doing so. But keep trying, and you will come to that realization. And if you do not, then you're deceiving yourself. And I'm not trying to be hard on anybody this morning. Basically, every religion in the world teaches some variation of trying hard to follow a teacher or that teacher's set of standards. You follow the teaching of Muhammad and Islam. It's in the Quran. You follow the teaching of Buddha and Buddhism. And on and on and on. Even the atheist tries hard to live, live up to a standard that he has set for himself or borrowed from somebody else. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is not try hard to follow the example of Jesus. That won't help you. That will only condemn you. Jesus is not just another teacher. Jesus is King of Kings and, and Lord of Lords. And by divine arrangement, God is conforming your life to his. You are not a Christian because you follow the example of Jesus. You follow the example of Jesus because you are a Christian. Let me say that again. You are not a Christian because you follow the example of Jesus. You follow the example of Jesus because you are a Christian. In Christianity, you do not do in order to become. You become in order to do. And I hope you hear the world of difference between the two. The picture then is not so much a child sitting at a desk, gazing at letters on a blackboard and trying hard to copy them exactly onto the page that's before him. Instead, think of it like this. You're taking your piece of paper and you're laying that on top of the master copy. And then the teacher comes and wraps his hand around yours and together you trace the pattern. The picture is already there and the one who drew it is guiding your hand. 
Your job is not to try to copy it, but to allow the teacher to trace it with you. This is the summons to suffer. Secondly, silence and suffering. Silence and suffering. What was the example that Jesus set for us? Verses 22 through 23. He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. First thing to notice is that verse 22 begins with a quotation from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 verse 9. In fact, Peter alludes extensively to the 53rd chapter of Isaiah in this passage. Quotes it at least four times. Now Isaiah 53, if you're familiar with it, is the chapter about the suffering servant. By the time Peter wrote this letter in the first century A.D., Isaiah 53 was firmly established within the thinking of the church to be a prophecy about the suffering and the exaltation of the promised Messiah, who is, of course, Jesus Christ. And so the first thing this tells us about suffering is that if Jesus is the servant of God who suffers while carrying out the will of God, so we too are servants of God who should expect suffering when we do the will of God. We should expect it. As the people of God, again, we do not seek suffering. We do not see any particular virtue in suffering just to suffer. We're not excited about the prospect of suffering. But we do understand that even as our Lord and Savior suffered in order to be glorified, so we too will be led down the same path. There is this, this inescapable and this intimate connection between the experiences of Jesus on earth and the experiences God will lead the Christian through in this life. Remember, he is the pattern, he is the paradigm. As one commentator writes, the past suffering of Christ is the present condition of believers while the present glory of Christ is the future glory of those who follow in the steps of the suffering Christ. What does Peter choose to focus on here in the example of Jesus? Well, he chooses to focus on the verbal aspect of the suffering servant's behavior, what was said or what was not said. We read that he committed no sin, verse 22. And of course, he committed no sin, refers to every realm of Jesus' behavior, not just his speech, but everything that he did. But so often, the temptation is to sin with our words, especially if we're being verbally abused. And we know that this verbal abuse was what Peter's readers received because we read back in chapter 2, verse 15, that doing the will of God will silence the ignorance of foolish men. You can only silence someone who is talking. We particularly observe Jesus' ability to remain silent in the face of hostility during his multiple trials the night before his crucifixion. When the high priest questioned him in Mark chapter 14, verse 61, we read, But he, Jesus, kept silent and did not answer. Then, before Pontius Pilate in Mark chapter 15, verse 5, it reads, Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. There's something powerful about silence in the face of accusations and lies. Second thing to notice about suffering 
is that silence is very often the best response. What is the temptation when you're slandered, when you're falsely accused, when you're verbally abused? Well, the temptation is to return the favor. We see this take place on social media all the time. And yes, I realize the back and forth is behind a keyboard, but it's no less than verbal sparring. That's what's going on. You're tempted to slander the slanderer. You're tempted to stretch the truth about your false accuser. You're tempted to heap scorn upon your verbal abuser. You want to paint them in the worst light possible. After all, that's what they've done to you. You might even be tempted to make threats. You want them to suffer because of your words in the same way you are suffering because of theirs. And there's not much more difficult than remaining silent in those moments. When I was in Belize, now many years ago, we parked the school bus, which we lived in, in a village where we lived for about three months when we first arrived. And at one point, we abruptly left and moved to another village where we ended up living for the remaining seven years that we were there. And since we didn't tell anyone in the first village while we left, and it probably wouldn't have mattered anyways, the villagers took it upon themselves to make up a reason. Hence, the rumor got started that I had impregnated a young woman in the village and had to flee because of it. And since these two villages were close together, I would often hike the two miles or so over the mountain between the two to visit people and to hold in-home Bible studies in the first village. Hence, the rumor grew to include me coming around occasionally in order to visit my growing child that didn't exist. And I never knew which lady was supposed to be the mother, nor which child was supposed to be mine. And frankly, I didn't care. What did I do about this rumor that persisted the whole time I was in Belize? Nothing. Of course, if someone came right out and said something, I would simply tell them that it was not true. But trying to find out who started the rumor or threatening some kind of local legal action or slandering someone's character in return for how mine had been slandered would have only damaged my witness. Silence was the right response. I know this because this is how Jesus handled slander and false accusations. I was not immune to such rumors. I was not immune to having my character questioned. I expected it. Why? Because the one who bids me to follow in his steps was not immune. Suffering is expected because we follow the servant of God who is called to suffer. And if silence is the best response, then how should we handle the difficulty of trying to keep our mouths closed? After all, we know James writes in James chapter two or James chapter three, verse two, if anyone does not stumble on what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Well, the answer to this is found at the end of verse 23. We read 1 Peter 2, 23. Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So unlike some modern day therapists, Peter does not encourage believers to just express their anger in some kind of outburst or tantrum. Peter also does not tell us to stuff our anger. Both of these 
expressive outburst, or suppressing are actually solutions that are self-dependent instead of God-dependent. And as you might figure, neither of those responses accomplishes God's intentions for your spiritual growth. Instead, we are admonished to continually entrust our unjust situation to a good and wise and just judge. This is key. First, it tells us that suffering unjustly is not pointless. You're entrusting yourself to God, not to other people, not to your circumstances, but to God. And this all goes back to what you believe or don't believe about God's sovereignty, about his providential arrangement of your life and all that befalls you. If your father in heaven wants you to become more and more like his son, which he does, and so he allows adverse circumstances, which he does, then the whole purpose of unjust suffering is so you will keep leaning into him. God knows and God cares. And every moment of suffering is an opportunity to once again trust him. Jesus kept entrusting himself to God. This is not a one-time thing. You have to renew your trust over and over and over again. And as often as you're tempted to wrest control out of God's hands and go off on your own to fix it, pause and commit it to the Lord once again. But in choosing to silently and patiently trust God, you're not giving up. That's not what's happening. You're not denying the injustice. You're not pretending that everything is okay. It's not okay. It's not okay for others to falsely accuse or slander or belittle you. What you're doing when you choose to entrust yourself to God is trusting that He judges righteously. In other words, you will be vindicated. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It may not even be in this life. But you will be vindicated. God is a righteous judge. God is going to ultimately reward the righteous and punish the wicked. So that means one of two things are going to happen. Those who treat you unjustly will repent. They will enter the ranks of the righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, and they will escape the wrath to come. That's one thing that might happen. Or the other is that they will persist in unbelief and receive the punishment we all deserve and are bound for apart from the intervening grace of God. That is eternal death. And the assurance that we have in all of this, the assurance that is the bedrock of your continual trust, is that everything, one way or the other, will be made right. Everything is going to turn out okay. And so this is not the silence of, of passive resignation. This is the silence, as one commentator wrote, of patient confidence. Patient confidence. Sometimes we remain silent from fear or from complacency. Jesus remained silent because he had utter confidence in God's plan. And he was determined to wait on his father's timing. This is the silence of confidence. And it is powerfully effective. It's a powerfully effective way of communicating your faith in a God who is not silent in the face of injustice. 
The other thing verse 23 tells us is that adverse circumstances do not mean God has abandoned you. There is this idea that's prevalent, that was prevalent in Peter's day, that misfortune indicated divine displeasure. That is, if anything bad happens to you, then it's because the gods are angry with you. Well, we so often think the same thing, do we not? We attribute almost subconsciously misfortune to God's displeasure. We just replace gods with, with God. When someone gets cancer or is involved in an accident or loses a loved one, sometimes the thought lingers in the back of our minds, I wonder what they did. Again, sometimes people do suffer the consequences of bad decisions. You smoke a pack of cigarettes a day for 40 years, you should not be shocked if you develop lung cancer, right? But for the Christian, we can never read into negative circumstances that God has abandoned us. We know this is not true because when Jesus suffered unjustly, God had not abandoned him. It was, in fact, the opposite. It was unjust suffering that God used to work out his redemptive plan. In the mysterious dealings of God, unjust suffering led Jesus to the cross and from there to the resurrection. If Jesus had not unjustly suffered, you would not have been given the opportunity of redemption. God used the slander, the false accusations that were leveled against Jesus. God arranged these things to accomplish his purposes. Peter is therefore letting his readers know that to follow Christ is also to follow him in his sufferings. But there's nothing to fear in this. It is through unjust suffering that God intends to bring you from death to the life that always comes when you entrust yourself to him. Circumstances that are adverse do not mean God has abandoned you. Because they did not mean God had abandoned Jesus. Thirdly, Strength and suffering. Strength and suffering. Peter now turns to the, the heart of the gospel message, which makes sense because this is the heart of the letter. Even as Jesus' suffering was not in vain because of what God accomplished through it, your suffering is not in vain because of what God will accomplish through it. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So this is a modified quotation of Isaiah 53, 12, which reads, Yet he himself bore the sins of many. Isaiah, the prophet some 600 years before, did not understand how it would be that the Messiah would do this. We, even understanding that on the cross, God counted our sins against Christ, still do not comprehend fully what that means. What we do know, because God's word confirms it, is that the Father thought of our sins as belonging to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. God treated Jesus on the cross exactly as he did not deserve, but you and I do. The anger of God against all sin was poured out upon the Son, and as a result, Jesus suffered separation from the Father. Jesus died in your place, simply put. We read the remainder of verse 24, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. 
This is something often overlooked, but it's a crucial component of the good news. Jesus not only died as a punishment for sins committed by you and me, but every Christian also dies with him. If you're a Christian, God views you as if you died on that cross. This is what Paul elaborates on in Romans 6.6, 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. It's like putting a letter in an envelope. If you mail that envelope somewhere, anywhere, it doesn't matter, the letter goes with it. Whatever happens to the envelope, it happens to the letter. They are separate, but in the mail, they are one. They are together. The Lord sees the Christian as if the history of Jesus is his or her history. Jesus died, so did you. You died in him. Your old self that which motivated and energized your sinful desires is made powerless in death. So if you died with Jesus, which you did, you also rose with him. This is what Paul writes in Romans 6, 4. As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. If the death of Jesus is your death, the life of Jesus is now your life. You are alive in him. And it's just as true that you died in Christ as that you now live in Christ. Christ is your life if you are a Christian. And because Jesus is dead to sin, so are you. You should no more think of yourself as engaging in sin as you would think of Jesus as sinning. He died so that you might die to sin. This also means because Jesus is alive to righteousness, so are you. If Jesus only died as our substitute, we would be forgiven, but we would be incapable of living a life pleasing to God. Jesus not only died, he rose from the grave. And for this reason, you and I are to live to righteousness. And Peter gives us two illustrations to help us understand. Again, he quotes from Isaiah 53, this time in Verse 5 of, of Isaiah 53, he says, By his wounds you were healed. Jesus did go around and physically heal people in Israel during his earthly ministry. And people are still healed today through faith in Jesus Christ. But this is not what Peter is referring to here. This is not physical healing. It is the spiritual healing that's accomplished through the death and resurrection. We know that spiritual healing is what Peter refers to because he's been dealing with the matter of sin and righteousness, not sickness and physical death. However, he is making an obvious comparison. What does a physical illness represent? Weakness. Think about it. When you're sick, you're weak. It's also a state of vulnerability. The body is compromised when you're sick. The immune system is unable to resist like it does when you're healthy. And this is what sin does to the soul. You're weak. You're incapable of living a life pleasing to God. You're unable to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to temptation. You're unable to resist the sin that so easily infiltrates and envelops our lives when we're left to our own devices. The wounds of Jesus are the wounds of death. 
when you entrust yourself to him, your sins that hung over you as a death sentence are counted as punished in him. His resurrection life brings spiritual vitality and strength. You are no longer weak in sin, but you're strong in Christ. You're no longer vulnerable to infection, but you're empowered by his strength to resist. Essentially, by his wounds, you were healed from the weakness and the vulnerability of sin. And this is why false words and unjust treatment and abusive speech cannot touch you. The only thing that could destroy your soul was the spiritual sickness of sin. But you are healed. You are free from the debilitating disease of sin. You're free from the shame that accompanies the disease of sin. Slander and threats and insults only have the hold on you that you allow them to have. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God holds nothing against the Christian, man has nothing against you. If God gives the Christian everything he needs to live according to the righteous example of Jesus, then you have no need to fear that you won't be able. And you have no need to fear failure. You are righteous, and you're accepted, and you're loved in Christ. Nothing you do or fail to do can change that if you're a Christian. God loves you as much on your worst day as he does on your best day. And if that's not enough, Peter concludes in verse 25 with one more powerful picture. For you were continually going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Left to ourselves, like lost and helpless sheep, we continually strayed. Our wandering into dark and dismal places, that was of our own doing. As Isaiah 53, 6 says, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. A wandering sheep is a lost sheep. He will die if he does not secure food and water, protection. And he only secures those things from the presence of the shepherd. Straying sheep, they do not fare well, and neither did you or I. But that was them. If you're a Christian, you have returned. Often in Scripture, when Jesus is portrayed as a shepherd, it is to convey what? It's to convey gentleness and tenderness. And that is certainly not lacking here, but gentleness and tenderness are not the main emphases. Here, the shepherd is Jesus, the guardian of his flock. Here, Jesus is the fierce protector. If you were in grave peril, so long as you strayed from the shepherd. But when you returned, you fell in behind him. You follow in his footsteps. You step where he steps. You stop when he stops. And you follow him right through the dark valley. It's not our witty retorts. It's not our vengeful comments. It's not our threats that are going to get the attention of a watching world. It is the way that we will respond in the shadow of the shepherd that is going to make an impact. The sheep does not guard himself. He cannot. The sheep places himself under the protection of the shepherd. 
You have no need to try to defend yourself. You have a shepherd who already fought the battle with sin and death on your behalf and won. And now you utterly trust in the shepherd's ability and willingness to protect, defend, and vindicate you. And the patient confidence of silence in the face of unjust suffering. Let's follow behind. Let's stay close. And let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for a word about how to respond when suffering unjustly. Lord, we don't want to avoid that. We know that you call us to follow the example of Jesus and you empower us to follow the example of Jesus. So we ask that you'd help us to be faithful when those moments come, those moments of suffering, that we would embrace them, that we would not fear them, that we would trust that you're working out your purposes and that those purposes are glorious in our best interest and, Lord, for your ultimate vindication and glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.